thank you. So this afternoon, I, I'll miss Tyler. I'll see you. I'll sit on the plane. Yep. You. Okay, the whole minute. world is opening up. That's really good to see. Yeah, I'm meeting loads of people tonight as well. <laughs> oh, that's good nice. Good to see but... the world coming back. Seventy-five percent plus of many places are now vaccinated, fully vaccinated. I think people are also just getting comfortable, like uh, I did. I'm like, okay, I'm vaccinated, and then I'm hoping, but you know, just uh, taking the risk, I think. <laughs> and then just it has been a while, right? So you can't, you can't really wait forever. I think that what I see here in Africa as well, some people just going out in the field. My husband is even flying back to DC next week, so I, I see that people are feeling a bit comfortable traveling. Also, the logistics, you know, you have this COVID logistics now. I did my PCR yesterday, I got my result in the evening. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to enter the country over there. And then, of course, the mask. And then when traveling back, the same. So that little bit logistics, but at the end, um, you know, it's just uh, a different way of life, but uh, close to the normal. Florian, that logistics will change in the UK on the 4th of October. You won't need a PCR test to come to UK. Yes, really? maybe, maybe not, one? because in the you know, last year, we had an easier summer, still with COVID, no, no vaccinations. And then the, you know, when things were colder, things got, again, quite difficult again. So I hope it is the case. But again, at the end, this can always change from one day to another. Yeah, my brother was was flying back from um, coming from Canada to, to Ethiopia last week, and his, his plane was... Uh, canceled his flight was canceled three times because the PCR didn't make it on time for his flight so they wouldn't wow. even allow him to get into a plane so yeah he has to pay three times before he made it back uh, like to to Ethiopia last week yeah yeah when I, when I you know when I went to um when I went to the to Tashkent two, two weeks ago you know to Uzbekistan I had to test every day every morning for five days you know, flying in PCR, flying, even going out to the airport PCR. But then every day we had to do a test. Kind of crazy. Okay. okay. Are we ready? Okay, Tyler. Two minutes oh. past the top of the hour. Are you okay. ready? I'm ready. Everybody else ready? We need Let's the air do this. There it is. <laughs> okay. So the top story, happy Monday, September 20th. The biggest story at this moment is from The Verge, and it says a possible retail listing of Surface Pro 8, which I guess is Microsoft's Surface, Surface Pro 8, with a 13-inch, 120-hertz display, narrow bezels, two Thunderports, leaks ahead of Microsoft's event on Wednesday. Microsoft holding a Surface hardware event on Wednesday. Microsoft preparing to launch a new Surface Pro 8, which it looks like a tablet. I guess Microsoft has a tablet called the Surface Pro 8. And I guess it leaked. I guess Why is it no surprise that uh, there was a leak of Microsoft? <laughs> well, maybe there was a vulnerabil vulnerability somewhere and someone was able to get those images and now they're out. So that's the top story. I guess there's still a lot of people who buy Microsoft products. So that's why it's a popular story. The number two story is about Facebook, Face, and it's written by Facebook, by 
Facebook's head of global issues or global policy, Nick Clegg, who works with the Biden administration on many issues. And it's, uh, yeah, he wrote this blog post that I'm tweeting out now called What the Wall Street Journal Got Wrong. And he wrote it over the weekend, and it's still quite popular because this is a, a, a vice president of global affairs, Nick Clegg of Facebook, writing, this is their response to the... He was also the deputy prime minister of the UK. Ah, yeah. Thank you. A little important additional color on that one. And basically he, you know, it's a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraph blog post making their case for uh, addressing these Wall Street Journal articles that we saw all week. There was six of them. It started out on Monday last week and then Tuesday and then Wednesday. I think they took Thursday off, then did two on Friday and another on Saturday for a total of six last week. And a whole bunch of, they have an insider giving insider information and leaking documents and email correspondences and internal discussions and screenshots of this, this, and this, and that. And every one of them leaves the reader thinking this Facebook is not to be trusted. And so we said somewhere around the third article, remember when the, the first two articles came out, Monday and then Tuesday, and then on the Wednesday article, I remember saying, hey, wait a second. <laughs> Didn't we read two articles yesterday by the Wall Street Journal that were also similar kind of smoking guns, you know, pointing fingers at Facebook? And then Vinay and others, we did a little sleuthing and figured out, yeah, holy cow, three in a row, three days in a row. What's going on here? They must have an insider informant. And then sure enough, on the fourth day, there was another one. Oh, my God, they do. And then they started saying, yeah, more to come. And then they branded it the Facebook files as if there's going to be a whole bunch of these. And then we started saying, well, Facebook's got to respond. They can't not respond. I mean, unless they just want to close up shop. And sure enough, this is their big official response. And without reading it to you, we, we read it together Saturday on our special Saturday gathering. And he doesn't really address anything directly they don't refute directly anything that was stated in any of the wall street journal articles notably they speak about why philosophically the approach is questionable that there's more uh, than um than meets the eye and there's you know okay uh, but no uh no direct refuting of any of the of the details because I think the wall street journal, it's hard to kind of refute what they were claiming. So none of the claims were refuted, but they're just want to paint um, the, 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 the bigger picture as it is that there's, there's more than meets the eye and, um, but they don't really give good detail on what that other more is. But um so that's where it stands now. But the, the the next question in this ever-evolving drama is, what will the Wall Street Journal do next? Where I think it's safe to assume there's going to be another article, like tomorrow. So what happens then? 
<laughs> when, when the beatings keep continuing. Because this article from Facebook, um, yeah, other journal, uh, other publications are reporting on it. Uh, the New York Times wrote a story about Nick Clegg's Facebook blog post. She titles it The Endless Facebook Apology. And uh, the Guardian says Facebook slams Wall Street Journal reports as deliberate mischaracterizations. Bloomberg says Facebook rebuffs Wall Street Journal reports, citing policy trade-offs. The Verge says Facebook VP disputes report claims that platform knows about multiple flaws it doesn't fix. He doesn't really refute it, though. And then Reuters says Facebook says Wall Street Journal allegations are mischaracterizations and confer false motives. And that is the best headline. So Reuters, you win the best headline for how to summarize uh, Facebook's response. Perfectly, Perfectly stated headline. Facebook says Wall Street Journal allegations are mischaracterizations and confer false motives. Yep, that's what his blog post does. He's saying it's a mischaracter. You're mischaracterizing what's happening, and you, Wall Street Journal, have false motives in doing this. You're you're being a bad actor because you're trying to twist things a bit here. Okay, um, I'm kind of curious what Kara Swisher from uh, the New York Times says here. The endless Facebook apology. She says on in March 2018, she interviewed Mark Benioff, who's this the chief the chief executive of Salesforce at the top of the company San Francisco Tower, which is Salesforce One. It's like now the biggest skyscraper in all of, uh, you know, Northern California. Things massive and sinking. Uh, Anyway, he offered up an astonishing metaphor when I asked him for his take on the impact of social media companies. Facebook is the new cigarettes, Benioff said. It's addictive. It's not good for you. And as it did with cigarette companies, the government needs to step in. He added, the government needs to really regulate what's happening. So that's how she starts her uh, her take. And it looks like Mark Benioff, who is a power player in Silicon Valley. I think he, I think he expresses what a lot of people feel. I, I think, you know, I, not everyone would necessarily agree directly with what Mark's point there. But I think in general, I think he pretty much captures the gestalt of how people feel about facebook so uh there was um tyler there was actually also a big coverage about it like on cnn yesterday and then they had even um ex-facebook person uh who is now with someone else in democracy i guess um a research uh, uh, company and they were really debating it and that was exactly what they said uh quoting the same person saying the new cigarette and then uh, people are already lobbying, um, trying to break up Facebook. They say that would fix some of the problem, but not uh, most of it. So, yeah, there was a, um, a huge discussion about the article, about what's happening on Facebook and how it's not good for the society. And apparently someone from Facebook was also saying, um, and even I think from all the quotes that they were saying, uh, in overall general perspective, uh, even though there are some challenges, 
Facebook in general has been a plus to society and that's their argument. And then they were saying, can you show it in data how, how good it, it is uh, and then how bad it is. And then you compare it in data perspective. Overall, it has been a net plus. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, quite interesting. And then how they said that um, Congress is, is going to have to step in and, and fix this. Tyler, can you mm-hmm. check the Henry's? Ken okay. wants to comment, okay. I think. Sure. And Michelle's down Ta- there too. Tyler, not, was not to ask you. Okay. Tyler, I was going to ask you, uh, has anyone looked at, because there must be people, I mean, I'm one of them, who don't use Facebook, uh, and compared, done a sort of, it could be a grant in here for someone who's from the social science background to look at the impact of Facebook versus non-Facebook on health issues. If it's like a cigarette, Maybe someone should do a study on it. And maybe someone has done that already. I don't know. Okay, so let's do yeah. the... Quite, uh, the, just very quickly. The, the, uh, something I didn't know about was also actually they took down um, the uh, vote and support apps by um, the Russian opposition. What's his name? Yelvenev. Um, I forgot his name. The Navalny. one who was poisoned. Novalny. Yeah. Apparently, they took down that app, and then they said that how come they didn't take down the other from the government side if they want to be playing the same uh, equal, <laughs> you know, equal arbitration? They should have taken down both, but why take it down only the uh, yeah, that, the, op- the opposition side only? You're you're referring to Apple and Google. There was a headline about Friday. Where and it's still being reported, late, you know, Monday by the slower big corporate media outlets in America, that Apple and Google complied with the Kremlin by removing an app by Putin's biggest political opponent, which is Navalny, who had an app to help coordinate his voters to strategically vote, and. So the Kremlin said, take this app out now. And of course, they didn't want to take it out. But then, as the New York Times says, they were f- rather forced to comply and really basically only complied once the Kremlin specifically named actual Google and Apple team members in Moscow that would be jailed if they didn't remove it. This is New York Times. We read this on Saturday, correct? Uh, Cheryl and Lakeisha and people who recall that. I did a little bit of a rant about it. And so they didn't have a choice. Their their employees were likely to be jailed and held in jail. Putin's known for... In, in Let me put it this way. There, it's widely reported that there's been a whole lot of Russian uh, Putin political opponents who have mysteriously died. Lots of them. And journalists. Putin critics generally have very short lifespans. This is a very well-recorded, well-reported phenomena. So imagine being Apple and Google and the Kremlin says, we need you to remove this app or here are the names of your team members here in Moscow that uh, will pay the consequence. And the question is, how much, uh, how much of a consequence will your team team members be paying and and there's it's even more sinister than this because apple and google intentionally don't want to have team members in in russia precisely because they they know that this was a possibility however when india just a few months ago 
started insisting that Twitter and the other social networks have actual team members on the actual ground in an actual office, physical, physical, actual humans on the ground who are actual employees, not just contractors. Twitter tried to play games and said, ah, we hired a lawyer there on the ground. He's on the ground. He's a lawyer. And they said, yeah, but he's not technically an employee. You have to have somebody who's technically you are legally responsible for, which you will find out why in a minute. (laughs) Hiring an attorney separate from you doesn't count because we want to be able to physically threaten that person. We want to threaten you with beating the shit out of your employee physically, doing a kasoji on them to get you to and use that as a lever of power over your head so that we can have a, a, a lever of negotiation over you. That's why we're insisting you have these people here as if, as if voice, as if zoom calls aren't uh, appropriate for resolving issues as if having a zoom wouldn't be suffice to address an issue. So they require India required it. Twitter had people on the ground. Twitter put up a pop-up notice on a go- somebody from the government spokesperson did a tweet that Twitter thought was uh, not totally um, truthful. So they put up a, this might not be truthful little pop-up on the tweet. That pissed off uh, the Indian government enough to send down six or seven heavy set gentlemen in uniforms down to their office physically to have a physical, not, not a phone call, not an email. We need to send a group of people in uniform to your office to have a conversation with you about why you put a little pop-up on our spokesperson's tweets. And when that happened, we we happened to have somebody in the audience who sent us to an actual live stream of an individual in the lobby of Twitter's building live streaming those dudes in the building. They were caught Could it make on live stream. We saw it in this room and said, holy shit. Wow. And at that moment, I remember saying, oh, I know what Russia's going to do next. Russia's going to do the same thing to the social media companies because Russia's playing these crazy games with the American social media saying, ban this, don't ban that, reinstate that YouTube account of Putin's buddy, take out this YouTube account of this, you know, Putin critic and do what we say or else. And Russia was, because though they weren't on the ground, they were saying, ah, we're going to slow down your internet service here in Russia. We're going to make your service so slow that it's not fun to use. Clever. Very interesting. I had never considered that. That's a really interesting way to punish an American social media company doing business in another country. And that's what they were doing. And they were giving out these little tiny fines, like $50,000, like really silly amounts. Anyways, then about a month ago, Russia said, you must now have physical people on the ground in physical offices. And I said, oh, watch out. Because uh, unlike, you know, thank God, you know, India just wants to come send guys down to have a conversation with you. I honestly believe they just want to have a conversation. In Russia's case, I suspect it's a little more than a conversation. In fact, Russia said it's more than a conversation. They said we're going to. They said they specifically said uh, we're going to incarcerate your people. These are the, they named the people to the New York Times and said, here's what's going to happen. And they said they're going to jail them. So we know it's more than just a conversation in, in the case of Russia with their, so, you know, Apple and Google's team members 
on the ground in Moscow. So that happened. And that's just to, so, but to answer your question, Messi, why didn't they also remove Putin's app in the app store if it even existed? Well, it's because they're doing what the, then this is what's so fucked up. They're doing what the country says to do with whoever's in power has the power to meddle with and make that those uh, moves. So Putin, because he's the government, and if you want to keep doing business in, you know, uh, you have to do what the boss says. And at the moment, the boss in India is Modi. And at the moment, the boss in Russia is Putin. And at the moment, the boss in, you know, Belarus is Lukashenko. And, you know, you got to do what these dudes say to do. That That's, that's how it works. So... Tyler, uh, yes. do you think this is what's going to, uh, barring, except for the liberal democracies, this might become the norm where they slow down uh, social media, etc., and as post-COVID era in various countries? I'm sorry, say it again. So uh, you just said that Russia was going to, said it was slow down the internet. Right. So I'm just saying this might become the norm in non-liberal democracies not just in russia and india it might be oh, across yeah the well I, on the in the bigger picture of things governments are realizing they have power over these tech companies to make them do whatever you know it, it depends on the market size it'll be interesting to see what happens in indonesia when indonesia says ah we don't like this or you know you know some middle eastern countries i imagine there's many countries where for example, where is where is it currently happening? Um, but it's interesting to see Apple and Google, you know, kind of kowtow to to the Kremlin. But if that was Moldova, they probably. I mean, if you're if you have people on the ground, even if it is a tiny tiny country like Moldova, if if you do have boots on the ground, although you would never put yourself in that position anyways, you would just say no, we're not going to put boots on the ground there. Um, but once you do have boots on the ground, then that country's dictator has power over you. But <clears throat> you might not capitulate to even putting boots on the ground there unless it's a market you really care about uh, the market size of. But I, that that seems to be the gameplay is um, other countries no doubt know to have noticed what we've noticed is, ah, I can have power over the all of these American tech companies if I can convince them to put people on the ground and I'm willing to. Uh, incarcerate them if they don't do what I say. Okay, so now I've got, I can tell Google to take down whatever I want them to take down and do whatever I want them to do, whether or not it's, they have no choice in the matter. So, to, yeah. Oh, and then, interestingly, last week, Moscow put out a, a press release of sorts saying they're going to start taxing the American tech companies and boosting their own domestic tech companies, precisely as India does. So that, again, made it perfectly clear that Russia actually got their uh, notes by watching India as we did, because India did the same. They built up their domestic unicorns. And, and I have no, not only do I have no problem with that, I think that's a, the smart thing to do if you're India is, you know, you, they had all these Chinese apps that were in there and they booted out the Chinese apps and they have a whole, uh, they are booming unicorns like, you know, in a record pace. They're in India. Fantastic. I have zero problem with that. I applaud that. I think that makes all the sense in the world. I, d I don't have a problem with China kicking out the tech uh, American tech companies and wanting to build their own Chinese apps. I, I don't have a problem with any country who's like, you know what? We want our own 
tech companies and we want and by the way just you know for what it's worth the eu would love to have their own google and microsoft and apple and facebook too because i've been in lots of lunch meetings where they say essentially that and the problem is they don't feel uh in the position to push out the american tech companies although it's it's funny it's funny watching knowing that it's interesting to see how they are making these policies lately and how ireland is where most of those companies are based in fact all of them and ireland doesn't want to push them out and yet the eu is telling ireland hey ireland you're not holding their feet to the fire on gdpr they're violating gdpr and you're supposed to be finding them and ireland's like yeah but we kind of like having these big tech companies here in dublin they employ a lot of dubliners so no let's not let's not hold their feet to the fire on gdpr they can go ahead and we're not going to actually enforce gdpr on them that's what's happening so um and for those who don't know gdpr is like data privacy rules uh so sorry to use a geek term with you and the next big headline is about tesla from the wall street journal Elon Musk's push to expand Tesla's uh, driver assistance to cities rankles a top safety authority. Tesla plans to expand access to its full self-driving system and defends its tech. Safety officials say more work is needed. Uh, Tesla is readying a major upgrade of its driver assistance software, which is the Tesla full self-driving. It's been launched in beta like over the weekend. And they're saying it's not going to be in beta for that long. And it's going to be full self-driving Teslas. Here we come. And uh, top federal crash investigator says the move might be premature. Elon Musk last week said drivers would soon be able to request an enhanced version of what Tesla calls its full self-driving capability. The upgrade is expected to add a feature intended to help vehicles navigate cities, expanding the suite of driver assistance tools that had been designed mainly for highways. Despite its name, full self-driving doesn't make cars fully autonomous, as Tesla instructs drivers to remain alert with their hands on the wheel. Jennifer Homendi, the new head of the National Transportation Safety Board, said Tesla shouldn't roll out the city driving tool before addressing what the agency views as safety deficiencies in the company's technology. The NTSB, which investigates crashes and issues, safety recommendations, uh, though it has no regulatory authority, has urged Tesla to clamp down on how drivers are able to use the company's driver's assistance tools. Here's the quote. Basic safety issues have to be addressed before they're, in, before they're then expanding into other city, other city streets and other areas, she said in an interview. She also expressed concern about how Tesla software is tested on public roadways. She called Tesla's use of the term full self-driving misleading and irresponsible, adding that people pay more attention to marketing than to warnings in car manuals or on companies' website. In Tesla's case, she said it's clearly misled numerous people <clears throat> to misuse the uh, and abuse the technology. Mr. Musk said Tesla's advanced driver assistance features prevent crashes and make driver driving safer. He has expressed he has expressed mixed views about the full self-driving system in recent months. We need to make a full self-driving work in order for it to be a compelling value proposition. Otherwise, people are, you know, kind of betting on the future, he said in July. 
responding to a question about customer interest in subscribing to the full self-driving package. Next one is a look at, from Bloomberg, a look at U.S. Finfluencers, which is the combination of fintech and influencers. Finfluencers. Uh, so a look at Finfluencers creators partnering with fintechs to promote investment products. As App Annie says, hours spent on finance apps are up 90% in the past year. And this is... this. I, I'm amazed how much uh, how much legs this article has. Uh, I think it's because it talks about people making five hundred thousand dollars a year being a finfluencer on TikTok, and so it's got everybody stuck at home without a job uh, emailing it to each other because this article came out, uh, yeah, on Friday, and it's still in the top ten. As I think people are a little bit thirsty to get their their beaks wet on some some of this influencer money, and it's a little easier said than done. But uh, that article's still very popular, although we we covered that one on Friday and Saturday when it when it came out. So the next one is uh, in a live Q and A, um, the CEO of EPIK which is pronounced Epic, but not to be confused with the gaming company. So the uh, in a live Q&A, Epic's CEO was talking into taking down a site that doxed journalists and admitted the controversial web host was breached last week. So Epic, with a K, not a C, is a web host who is basically the last place one can go when they've been kicked out or deplatformed elsewhere. And he recently, Epic was hosting a site that was doxing journalists, which no other host would do. And so I guess uh, he was talked into taking that down. And then it was revealed because there's a lot of people who don't like Epic uh, because they have, they host websites for, uh, white supremacists and all kinds of folks who have, you know, get, typically get deplatformed. And so he became the target of, I believe it was Anonymous, who took out a whole bunch of data. And apparently now he's acknowledging that indeed uh, he has been breached. So the next one is a profile of someone named Ishmael Fami who's become an Indonesian household name for combating misinformation with data from his company's social media mapping tools. And there's a photo of him, and I'm going to tweet this out You can, so you can follow along. And uh, this is a rather lengthy one, but essentially it goes into, uh, it starts in 2016, that when there was a protest in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta, as many as 200,000 opponents of the city governor spilled into the streets demanding his prosecution for alleged blasphemy of the Holy Quran. For those who don't know, Indonesia is a very observant Muslim country, I, I think the largest by population. And Actually, um, Indonesia have a lot of Muslims, but they are technically not a Muslim country. Malaysia is a Muslim country. Okay. No, so, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country, but they... No. Not- 
they have a lot of Muslim, not, but they are uh, not a Muslim not, country. Not in their what's it called? Their secular kind yeah. of thing. Right. Yeah, politically secular. Yeah. Um, though, though the day's demonstrations had begun relatively peaceful as night fell, they descended into clashes with tear gas, armed police. Engineer Ishmael Fami was idling at his desk, half an eye on the social media monitoring project he had built. The program had been tracking demonstration-related keywords for two days. As he watched, mentions of the keyword dead began to appear repeatedly. A piece of misinformation being pushed through bot networks, he realized, racing across the Twitter sphere. Fami launched into action. The source seemed to be an article posted on a portal called Pojusaru that misleadingly linked two unrelated deaths with the day's protests. Posting on Facebook, Fami reported that the article had been retweeted by bots at exactly the same moment, 9.08 p.m., and bore telltale markers of fake accounts. So the people who were tweeting them were fake accounts. One of them was at Obertolf, uh, followed a grand total of three accounts, and had tweeted 11,000 times in just a few months. Yep, that's a fake account. The city's atmosphere was combustible, he said to himself. I thought if people on the field that day read this misinformation, they could get angry and create chaos, Fami told the rest of the world. Looking at the screen, he said it was plain as day that the news was a hoax. The following month, Fami was invited by the Indonesian Ministry of Communication and Information Technology to analyze another pro proliferating hoax, one that claimed that the government was employing millions of undocumented Chinese workers he worked his magic again. The news website at the source was blocked by the government shortly after. The series of events would help make Fami's famous famous in Indonesia and set him up to become the voice of reason in an increasingly distorted information landscape. These days, he is a household name in local media, bespectacled and fast-spoken. He has built a profile combating misinformation with the data generated by his social media mapping tools. The proprietary software powers his private consultancy called Media Kernels, while he offers the same analysis tools for free to academics and NGOs. The balancing act of running a monetized data advisory, investigating misinformation, and the public interest through places he is uneasy is an uneasy uh, is an uneasy space in the Indonesian inter internet. Anyway, so he sounds like a geek who has some data, and he's bringing data to the misinformation battle in a in a great way. So hopefully Facebook hires him for, I don't know, give him 100000 a year. That's like winning the lottery in Indonesia and, you know, call it a win, Facebook. That's the easiest thing you could do. How easy is that? Or Twitter or wherever this misinformation was happening. It sounded like it was Facebook, but maybe I'm just projecting. But um, anyway, so, yeah, data can help misinformation for sure. The next one up is from The Verge. A look at the lawsuit over the, fl oh, the Flick Type app for Apple Watch, uh, where Apple had offered to buy as Apple unveils its own swipe keyboard. Oh, boy. So this is chapter two of this little drama. So there was in, in Apple Watch just got is getting an update today, Monday along with the iPhones that, by the way, one of the other headlines coming up, no doubt, is the fact that the iPhone iOS 15 is coming out today. And so is the watch uh, operating system. And in the new watch operating system, 
there will be a new swipeable keyboard, an actual keyboard for the first time that you can click with your fingers and you, you can click or you can swipe on the keyboard. Very clever. There already was a swipeable keyboard for the Apple Watch. There was a separate third-party app some developer named Costa Eleftheriu had made. And we noticed that he had been told he could not operate in the App Store recently. And then magic presto, it appears in the new operating system. So Apple knew that guy's keyboard existed, kicked him out, and replaced him with their own. That was the headline last week. And now the update Today is a look at the lawsuit <laughs> over FlickType app for Apple Watch, where the developer uh, claims Apple had offered to buy him. That, and that's actually normally what happens. Apple Note was trying to avoid that headline that we read last week. Apple doesn't like it when the headline comes out. Apple just banned somebody from their store and replaced them. They knew that was a real possibility. So... They approach, this happens all the time, by the way, in all kinds of apps and all kinds of platforms where the big company comes in and says, hey, uh, we'd like to buy you. Um, and then they, it's not the most generous offer in the world, but it's not usually the worst. It's not like a terrible offer either. And it's towards the bottom end of reasonable and they make you an offer. And if you don't take it, then they can say, ah, well, now they can say, well, we offered to buy them. and." Uh, you know, so and partly because no doubt to avoid a lawsuit as well, which they're likely to get in deep shit in that lawsuit, depending on how good your attorney is. Although you better have damn good attorneys because they sure do. Apple's got insanely good attorneys. So um, in this story, it says that the developer Costa had every reason to believe Apple was about to make a deal. His lawsuit alleges Apple's head of keyboards loved his flick type keyboard app for the apple watch gushing over how few mistakes it made apple should buy this from you the man exclaimed saying it could be a feature for the watch he demoed it for the apple watch team january 24th with the senior engineer allegedly gushing too that evening the developer received a message from apple but not the one he expected in the course of one afternoon the company had seemingly decided that apple watch keyboards were against the rules specifically the app is a keyboard for the Apple Watch. For this reason, your app will be removed from sale on the App Store at this time, Apple wrote. This Tuesday, Apple revealed its own swipe keyboard app alongside the new Apple Watch. Uh, and then Costa, the, the developer of the apps, had been Sherlocked. <laughs> ah, and so he took to Twitter himself. And he says in his tweet... So, so now we know. See you in court, Apple. And then it says he's far, he's far from the first. Apple has a long history of looking to its own app developers for inspiration, copying their ideas, and integrating them into its own operating system for free. It's called Sherlocking because Apple famously copied a lot of features from the third-party Watson app over its Sherlock desktop tool in 2002. Uh, but it isn't your typical case of whether a developer should be entitled to income or whether users deserve the functionality for free and not just because Apple's making users pay for a new watch to get it. When Apple blocked his app two years ago and continued to tussle him over updates, the company made an enemy of him. He's become one of Apple's most vocal critics, developing a reputation as a scam hunter. 
He continually and effectively points out that Apple is terrible at keeping out frauds. Oh, is this the guy? Which bilk ordinary users out of it? I bet it is. I think this is him. Holy cow. How interesting is this? So uh, in March, he filed a lawsuit against the company over his app, alleging that the company continued to reject and hold up his Apple Watch keyboard for months in an attempt to force him to sell it to Apple for cheap. Eventually, Apple thought the plaintiff would simply give up and sell his application to Apple at a discount. The complaint reads, here's the part where you might be thinking, wait, didn't Apple ban every keyboard app from the Apple Watch back in 2019? Or didn't this developer just tweet that rejection message and say, see you in court a couple days ago? The timeline is a little confusing. It's true. Yes, he filed the suit nearly six full months before the Apple Watch Series 7 announcement. It's not clear what impact the Sherlocking might have had might have in the suit, and he won't say his lawyers are advising him against saying too much to journalists. But no, Apple didn't actually reject every Apple Watch keyboard app in 2019. He believes his app was singled out for for this treatment. Shift keyboard had already arrived in, in February 2019, and even partner apps that included his keyboard tech allegedly made it through. Apple tells The Verge it changed its mind over time. Originally, the company didn't think it was appropriate for a keyboard to take up the entirety of the Apple Watch's screen, but decided differently in 2019 after it saw the potential and says it encouraged Apple Watch keyboards ever since. The company basically admits that removing his app was a mistake and claims it quickly corrected the issue, but he just disputes that last point, saying it took over a year of appeals and resubmissions to get his keyboard back under the store. From January 2019 onward, I was simultaneously discussing a Flick-type acquisition with them while also being rejected. And Apple initially made it look like those appeals failed too. The App Review Board elevated your app and determined that the original rejection feedback is valid. Please note all appeal results are final, meaning, yeah, you're appealing, you're trying to get back in the store, and we're not letting you back in the store. Uh, in the complaint, he alleges it wasn't until January 2020, a year after the surprise takedown, that his Apple Watch keyboard extension was approved. When FlickType for the Apple Watch did finally arrive, it became the number one paid app in the entire store, pulling in $130,000 in its first month, he claims, and was noted and was named one of Apple's top paid apps for 2020. That's what he's using as grounds that he's being financially harmed in the lawsuit. Uh, wow. And then Apple is already now concurrently under the hot in the hot seat in the U.S. government for using a, their monopoly position to bully smaller app developers. This is a fantastic example. This case could become the, the poster child case that the lawyers use as the evidence to crack the hammer on Apple's head. So this this meddling with this dude could end up costing them billions if they use him as which they're likely to do, use him as a poster child story as a this uh, the lawyers who are, you know, the government who's trying to crack down on Apple's antitrust. Oh, they're going to they they love this. Oh my god, is this like super sweet, you know, stuff to bring up in the court case. So, and they'll bring this guy up as a witness and everything else. So Apple, uh, you might want to pay this guy like a few million dollars to get to like ASAP. 
uh, what per, because you know you got to get this get make sure this guy doesn't appear in the court and pay him and silence him and uh, as part of your conditions of the acquisition, you know, um, leave you know kind of do a gag order on him so he's not able to comment on anything. Tyler, how much case of so, would someone really have here? So somebody builds something that is only utility that is, it works with Apple. Okay, this is very different than let's say Fortnite that obviously also works with Google that would work with another third party uh, operating system should it have existed, um, or you can use it on a you know you know a, a, a Sony you know a, a console or something. This this is something that somebody said, hey, I I could I can make the something that makes your Apple device work a little bit better, but it's their devices. They should control it. I mean, it's a they spent all the money developing it. I, I just don't understand the, why someone cl- thinks they have a claim. It's in the contract, though. I mean, the, the Apple Developers Agreement, Section 11, clearly states that – I'll read it to you. Apple Independent Development. Nothing in this agreement will impair Apple's right to develop, acquire, license, market, promote, or distribute products, software, or technologies that perform the same – or similar functions as or otherwise compete with any other products, software, or technologies that you may develop, produce, market, or distribute. I mean, that's that's in um, the Apple developer. That's in the Apple MFI. It's why people don't develop on those platforms, um, but it isn't, you know, a right. It's a right that Apple reserves because you signed the contract. So you're you're agreeing with me, Chris, right? Basically, right? yes, I mean, yes. I, I just know it's part of the rules. I mean, I'm I make I used to make accessories, you know, and we knew every accessory we pushed through the program could easily get Sherlocked by Apple, and so the companies that came to me factor that into their decision making process of if they were going to make an iOS device or not. And a lot of times their risk management, their their risk said, no, we're not going to do it. Hey, Tyler, this may, I don't know if this was before your time. Do you remember a software company in Santa Monica called Quarterdeck? Is that familiar to you? No. Okay, so Quarterdeck, this is probably like the early 90s. This was a software company that were based in Santa Monica. And all they did, this is the early days of, of Windows, okay, when Windows was first getting started. It may have even been at the point of DOS. I don't even remember. But basically, it was a company that made utilities that worked with Microsoft's operating system because Microsoft didn't have a lot of features on its operating system, whether it was DOS or the early version of Windows, I don't remember. And I remember shorting the hell out of this stock and making a lot of money because I realized that at some point Microsoft would just incorporate all these features itself as it, you know, came up with its own, you know, iterations of its own operating system. And sure enough, they went under. I mean, because th- there was nothing to that they were doing other than kind of piggybacking on on Microsoft. It wasn't like an independent application, you know. Um, trying to think of something that would be an independent application of, uh, you know, that. But something that would be, well, at some point there were word processing firm companies that were independent of, of, you know, before there was Word, there was WordPerfect, there were other things, right? So, you know, know, okay. So, but this was, this was a company that was, the the, the product was, had no use outside of Windows or outside of DOS. So, I mean, you know, so that's that problem. You know, what, what do you expect to happen? I've seen this in the chip industry too. 
You know, sometimes you have customized chips, and then eventually Intel or Texas Instrument figures out how to build that functionality into the next chip, you know? Yeah. I, th I think in this case, where Apple screwed up was saying, ah, Apple should buy this. And then immediately uh, in that in that same email thread saying, oh, now we're shutting you down. That's, <laughs> that's where I would agree with you that there is there is definitely some unfair business practices there. Um, that, that's a little bit. They'll pay some money to make it go away. It won't be that much. Yeah. The guy, the guy is, uh, you know, he he's not an American. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of people who who believe that this is a gambit to sort of like get access and to cause trouble for Apple. Apple's essentially a national champion, which is what that epic you know ruling more or less revealed. You know, Tim Cook trips over himself to help the U.S. government on things. Sorry, but I'm not buying it. I think it'll just go away. I, I think they'll try and make a case out of him or people like him. The yeah. government try, trying yeah, to build won't. a case that they do things like this. No, they use these cases as a form of leverage and negotiation, not, you know, to basically chip away at Apple's monopoly. But the government still wants Apple to have the monopoly. They have to. We have to have a national cell carrier that's more or less controlled by the U.S. government or things get really wonky really fast. I see where you're going. Um, we'll be, we'll see. I don't, I, I imagine there'll be an update in days to come around this one. The... Hey, Colin, you, you remember the movie flash of genius, right? You've seen that one, right? No, really? Okay. So that was about the guy who actually developed the intermittent windshield wiper. And then he was, you know, uh, Oh yes. Oh through. yeah. 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 Right. Yes. How did he do in court? Took him like thirty years, and he died before he before he collected anything. What a funny movie! Yeah. Look, my my great grandfather was an inventor of oil well or oil well swinging oil wells, and what happened? The U.S. government came to him, and they said, on reason of national security, we strongly encourage you to sell this to. I think it was a firm owned by by Hunt Oil at the time, and what did he do? He bitched, he moaned, he hired a bunch of lawyers. And within six months, he realized he couldn't beat them, and he sold. Okay, here we go. That's, well, that's, just, that, that's just how it is. Yeah. Next up is, uh, as hedge funds ramp up private market investments, a look at uh, Kotua, the, a hedge fund started by ex-Tiger Global employees that manages $50 billion in assets. And I'll just tweet that one out for those who want to do that deep dive. And they and Tiger Global and SoftBank um, and a few others are definitely jump, you know, getting into all the deals these days uh, with expeditiously. The next one's from the Washington Post profile of Chris Gillard, aka Hypervisible, who has helped coin concepts like digital redlining to highlight the impact of tech on marginalized groups. Okay, so it's a profile piece. So we will move right along. The next one from the Economic Times. And they say this is new, a new a new article that's just coming out. Facebook India appoints Uber executive as head of public policy. A post that has been vacant for nearly a year. Okay. Next, an interview with GitHub COO Erica Brescia on GitHub's infrastructure changes, open source, etc. And then the next article is about the Epic versus Apple 
ruling shows that gaming apps account for 70% of app store revenue. Wow. I guess it's because of all the internal purchases. Like even after you're playing the game, you continue to spend a lot of money on that game to buy armor and guns and extra, you know, uh, in-app purchases. So yeah, it's not good. Yeah. It's not good at all. Yeah, but that, the games themselves, a lot of times, are free. But you people spend thousands of dollars on games, and so you would you would think it would be insane to pay hundreds or a thousand dollars for any app in the app store. But some of these video games, after a year or two or three of play, people are spending <laughs> considerable coin in these games. So yeah, it's uh, been compared. It's been compared to people who have addictions to casinos. That it's a similar kind of thing, and it seems to affect people similarly in terms of their addiction. There, they, you know, the, the video game industry has fought tooth and nail to stop there being like monetary caps on how much money people can spend in app. And uh, I think it's going to be. I think we won't. It won't be long before we'll see similar regulations in the United States on video games. Uh, that you know that, that that sort of like how the Chinese are operating, but we'll be more subtle about it and more you know, sort of Oche about it than the Chinese are. Yeah, I think, uh, I think this is worse than the casino because you can't even win any money on this stuff. At least on the casinos, I mean, you, you, you can get, you can, you know, win sometimes, you know? Yeah, the other thing I was going to add is um, uh, I'm actually curious connecting this with the Epic Games saga. Like, um, uh, do, do Epic Games realize how much, like, um, parents, uh, you know, obviously they lend out their card on the device to... To kids to play games and how easy it is for, for kids to be able to pay that way so i'm wondering if epic has, has has considered if they had their own payment mechanism outside of the app store whether it would be as easy to get kids hooked in and parents to be shocked i mean even my dad who has an apple tv i bought for him he occasionally buys random movies on the apple tv you know store itunes i guess would be um and i had to, I had to tell him like oh um do you, do you realize i'm paying for that, that for, for that it's like, oh i didn't realize it was so easy to pay check out so I'm actually wondering, um, you know, uh, you know the, the Epic Games side, whether whether they realize how easy it is that Apple Apple makes it for even for kids to 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 buy things, or even those. Yes. Yeah, you know, I made a case to some Apple engineers like two and a half years ago that what they should do is they should make it so that whenever you buy something online uh, through your iPhone, it takes a picture of whoever's the person is on the other end, uh, you know, buying the product, because that way, you know, you, when you dispute charges, you can actually have like. Mm. Oh, it was actually like my five-year-old or 10-year-old that spent this money. And in a lot of cases, what I've heard is that they're very afraid to do this sort of thing because they realize that there's a lot more of kids buying you know, content that they shouldn't be buying online uh, through their parents' accounts. And they're very, cons- you know, the Apple and others are very concerned about this sort of thing being known to the wider public. Hmm. Huh. There's just a ton of friction in getting your money back, and that's what it is, is they know that the money exactly. is owed to them, exactly. but they know that there's so much hassle in getting it back that they don't even try. And there's the sense of like, oh, well, I let my kid do it, so it's my fault. And is there a kid's account? Can you, can Apple set, can you set up a kid's account, like, a, like you know, maybe a weekly uh, allowance for you, uh, you know, for, for kids to, to be able to automatically purchase? I mean, I don't think Apple hasn't, hasn't sent them to do that, but that would be the responsible thing to do is to allow parents to further control um, how kids can buy this. Because, I mean, Apple make, make a lot of noise about, you know, protecting privacy and, you know, being kid-friendly, but this would be a very easy way for them to, uh, 
to make it to give control, control back to parents. So it would have yeah, I mean, the argument, the, the, the argument I was making on this is that there's a lot of apps on the on the iPhone that are like particularly addictive. So in much the same way as in the casinos, if you go into a casino and you your are the uh, you know, security will politely escort you out um, or at least they're supposed to legally. Um, you know, I think the same thing should be done with a lot of people who are you know, neurologically strange or you know, have, have addictive issues on some of these apps so where you can register yourself or register family members with video game or pornography addiction. Um, and I think if that were to, you know, if that were to happen, things would get very interesting very quickly. And I think you'd see a lot, a lot of uh, money dry up on online and particularly through the app store. And I think, by the way, the video game restrictions are coming. Like the conversations I've had, you know, in the last like month have been very like, you know, there have been a lot of people looking to see what happens with China on the video game crackdown and whether or not that's applicable to other countries. So shouldn't the parents already have control? I mean, if, you, if you give your kid a, an independent cell phone, okay, um, and all you have to do, make sure there's, there's no credit card attached to the account so that they can't make any kind of purchases whatsoever with the cell phone, all they can do is make phone calls, which is probably the only reason you should, your kid should have a cell phone anyway. Good point. You yeah, do. I mean, I think there's take care in how you set it up so that your kid has their own, lo- you know, account that they log into when they use their phone and have all those settings set up for them, and they're not logging into mom's account, basically. Yeah, I think the argument is that it's very difficult for parents to, you know, like Apple and others make it very, very hard for parents, particularly like you know, single mothers. This is the argument that's proffered, right? It's not necessarily my argument, but that Apple and others and other tech companies. Uh, make it very hard to distinguish sometimes, you know, who's on the other end of the phones or, you know, it's, so the same thing, same thing is true of a, of a lot of things with, with, you know, Facebook and Google, when it comes to targeting ads at kids, it's the same sort of thing that there's concern about with, with Apple. And so the question is, at, will there be a point in the near future in which your phone will also spy back on you using the products? Um, and, you know, what is, what are the implications of that for civil liberties what are the implications of that for people who are addictive and who like probably shouldn't be accessing certain things? You know, th- those are kind of the questions. I think it's also the a matter that, you know, um, parents are giving their kids their own phone just to kind of occupy them when they're doing something. So, uh, you know, like kids who have iPhones, I mean, in America, yes, but like if you look at Apple sales, it's in other parts of the world as, as well. And not everybody can afford to get their kid an iPhone. So, they're just using their parents' phones. Yeah, I was just thinking that most of the time when you spend money in app, it's so that you can spend more of the like coins or souls or whatever you call it in like Clash of Clans or um, the Mortal Kombat game and all of these other games. Like those are just so you can spend the the real money in you know the fake um, the fake games money. So. Most of the time, their money's already been spent and used within games, so I don't see how you can get that back and undo such a purchase. So moving on to the next ones. Um, Creator IQ, which helps brands with influencer marketing by promoting e-commerce, raises $40 million. LA-based Tradesy, an online marketplace for second-hand high-end fashion goods, raises $67 million for a second-hand high-end fashion app here it comes whole lot of used marketplaces the e mobile ebay's 
much better versions of eBay. Very simple Tinder-like versions of eBay. Keep swiping until you find something you like. And uh, why why buy new? And then the social commerce, the the Amazon's going to have to get more into the used thing. There's going to be a boom of used sales of stuff. Um, Pagaya, whose AI-powered service makes financial transactions like lending more efficient for banks, is going public via SPAC value $9 billion. And what Saudi-based customer communications raises $125 million by SoftBank. Following Apple and Google's app removals of Navalny's smart voting app, Telegram blocks Navalny's smart voting chatbot on the second day of voting in Russia's elections. So why is Telegram, which is end-to-end encrypted, this should be interesting, although Putin's been trying to shut down Telegram for a very long time. I would Uh, check that. I would check that, Tyler, as to whether or not that's actually true that he's been trying to shut it down, whether or not that's fake information. Yeah. So popular messaging app, Telegram has suspended all chatbots used used in the Russian election campaign in another blow to jailed opposition uh, politician Alexei Navalny's smart voting initiative after Apple and Google removed the election guide app from their stores. Russians headed to the polls for the second time uh, for the second of three days of voting on September 18th in a parliamentary vote that the ruling Kremlin-backed United Russia Party is expected to win following a clampdown by authorities on dissent that eliminated vocal Kremlin critics from the ballot and crushed independent media. Well, that's one way to win an election, is kill all of your critics, Very sometimes literally. Navalny's team promoted smart voting as a way for voters opposed to President Vladimir Putin to identify candidates who have the best chance to defeat candidates from the uh, ruling pro-Kremlin party. So that's very clever. So basically, um, we all will agree which of the non-Putin in the party, we all need to, rather than splinter our vote across 10 different candidates who are all competing with Putin, let's all go behind one candidate in multiple areas of Russia so that we can get them to beat their opponents which is the United Party, the United Russia Party, which is Putin's party. So that's how you win. Yeah, you don't want to splinter yourself across 10 different competing parties. You want to make sure you win in each territory by unifying your votes around one candidate. Very smart, super smart. And that's using... what we did in college. That's what we did in college. Uh, we elected the engineers, uh, the homecoming king and queen every year because we unified the vote. So, but, but using an app to do that is kind of genius. Uh, the team created the smart voting chatbot on Telegram, which became one of its main electoral tools. But Telegram founder Pavel Durov announced late on September 17th that the service would abide by Russia's election silence, a law practiced in other countries that prohibits campaigning during the elections. We consider this practice legitimate, and we plan to limit the functioning of bots associated with election campaigns, said the Russian founder of one of the world's most popular messaging apps. As the vote kicked off on September 17, the smart voting app disappeared from the app and Google online stores in what Navalny Associates slammed as censorship and the tech giants bowing to Kremlin pressure. Durov 
uh, of Telegram also said he was following Apple and Google with di dictate, which dictate the rules of the game to developers like us. The blocking of the application by Apple and Google creates a dangerous precedent that will affect freedom of speech in Russia and around the world, he said. Durov said Telegram, like other mobile apps, relies on Apple and Google's ecosystems and support to function. He said the two tech giants this year already demanded Telegram remove information to comply with laws in other countries. The U.S. tech companies threatened to exclude Telegram from the catalogs of Google Play and App Store applications if it didn't comply. Oh, so he's blaming this on Apple and Google. Well, now that they can sideload, he has no reason to not comply, right? <laughs> yeah, Tyler, on a separate topic, Evergrade, their shares, I just read on um, Reuters, I've sent it to you on the back channel on the Twitter, TNTW, mm -hmm. uh, is dropped 11-year low. Yes, it's practically down to zero now. So they've they've lost essentially a, nearly a hundred percent of the value in the past couple of weeks. So um, we'll get into. I think we, I think this Telegram story was the last popular story, and now we get to go into the fun stories like this one that uh, Professor Ossoff just sent in about um, China's Evergrande, which is their one of, if not their very largest, real estate development companies, which was as $305 billion of debt, which they're not going to be repaying. That, and China's warning the banks not to expect payment on the loans. And says, shares of Evergrande on Monday plunged as much as another 19% to the lowest in 11 years, ex extending losses as investors take a dim view on the business prospects with fast approaching deadline for payment obligations this week. By noon, the stock had touched... Uh, two Hong Kong dollars, the weakest, uh, the company's property management unit dropped. Da, da, da. Evergrande has been scrambling to raise funds to pay its many lenders, suppliers, and investors with regulators warning that $305 billion of liabilities could spark broader risks to the country's financial system if not stabilized. They also have they, about 4 million laborers that uh, are employed as a result of their development development projects. So you have potentially, in just their case alone, by the way, Evergrande isn't the only re big real estate company that's in a in a bit of a pinch. Um, but yet they, it, they are responsible for the employment of nearly 4 million laborers alone. I'm, although in America, that would be a large number. In China, still pretty large number. But... Um, yeah, this Evergrande thing. Many we have other headlines coming up about it. Where they're... are the Chinese gonna let it fail? I mean, are the Chinese the Chinese communist system more capitalistic than the American it, system? It I mean, says kind of interesting. It says in a default in any default scenario, Evergrande will need to restructure the bonds, but analysts expect a low recovery ratio for investors. Trading of the company's bonds underscored just how dramatically investors' expectations. Uh, of its prospects have deteriorated this year. I mean, you may go over this later, Tyler, but I had read that they're now offering investors property in lieu of uh, returning well, their funds. Well, in part because they have tons of unfinished buildings and property that, well, what happens to all of that? Um, there's, I forget the number. It's, it's a, some huge number of homes have been, People have paid their deposits on 
and they can't they're not finishing them no one's working right now they they've shut down all kind of uh work on all of their projects so and many retired people have bought properties from them in the hope of moving so that's a, that's another big issue so there's... The technicals look nasty, Tyler. I mean, uh, I, I think you're about to go into shark mode soon. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler, the, did you yeah. mention also that the uh, senior executive, some of the senior executive actually made uh, early redemption of their investment product with the company? No. Oh, I said, I DM you. Okay. Um, hold on. Hold on. Do it again. Okay. Hey, hey Tyler, this is Ken. Right, I'll make got... a point here. Is it, uh, hold is on, it Ken. General, general... Okay. I got her. I got Cheryl's article from Nikkei Japan. Evergrande says six executives redeemed investments in advance. China's heavily indebted developer says it has asked that money to be returned. Six executives of China's heavily indebted Evergrande had redeemed some of the company's investments products in advance earlier this year. The, pro- the property group said on Saturday between May and September 7, which was not that long ago. The six executives made early redemptions of 12 investment products. Evergrande said in a statement on its website without identifying the executives who would be dragged into the streets out of their homes, no doubt, or giving details on the nature of the products. Regarding the early redemption of Evergrande's wealth investment products by some managers, the group company views the matter seriously. So. Yeah, so, yeah, so the point I was I was going to make, and, and obviously I'm, Hong Kong is a whole different situation, but if this was the U.S., if this was Canada, if this was U.K., the way a situation like this would get resolved, particularly if this is a company that apparently is critical over in over there in China, it would be like the equivalent of General Motors over here. And if the government wants to save it, what it will do, it's the shareholders are going to get wiped out. Okay, uh, this is go- again. This is kind of the way it would happen in the West. And I think it's going to happen like there too. Um, and then they'll restructure the bonds. They'll tell the bondholders, you know, we used to have a bond that was worth a hundred cents on the dollar. Now, you know, we'll offer you twenty cents. We'll give you new bonds. You know, you know, they'll, you know, but, but they'll be twenty cents on the dollar, and that's how we'll deleverage you. And then you'll have less debt, and then you could function, and then you can keep your employees employed, and. Um, you know, in, in, in the United States, and they'll do something probably similar there, in the United States, there's something called debtor in possession financing. So when you get a company that's that big, that is has some value to the larger society, the big bank, you know, the big banks, you know, show up, they become your senior lender. It's called deep, dip financing. It goes in front of your bonds in terms of seniority. And, and then that gives you working capital to continue to operate. And, you know, and you, yeah, and so you basically, you know, push down your, your existing creditors and you wipe out your shareholders. And that's a debt restructuring for you. I mean, that's typically the way it works in the West, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not what they did in 2008. I, I mean, I sort of get that it was a very different situation. <laughs> the whole uh, U.S. financial system was in a meltdown, including the global financial systems. But that's not what they did. That's not what Geithner did. That he mentioned he didn't want to spook investors and then get into even more uh, financial lending we crunch. Had the, so, we had TARP, right? Right. They, in fact, pumped in so much more money. And then that and was a the program guys, for the whole can... economy. I'm talking about one specific company. So when the United States has bailed out auto companies specifically, you know, TARP was a general program for the whole economy. That's a whole different situation. That's when the whole economy fails. 
Yeah, I understand. But at the very beginning, that's not what they did. They let, you know, Lemon Brother go down. And then, uh, you know, when the others start falling apart, even the Bernsterns, they just got built them out and stuff like that. In fact, Bernsterns wasn't actually that big. Quite frankly, Bernsterns was not that big compared to some of the other ones. And they did and they didn't and they and they didn't want to like what happened there was that they didn't want to have to bail out every one of them. But when Lehman failed, they kind of realized we can't let any any other ones fail. But they, they don't want to like necessarily bail every company out. You know, in the United, in, a, in a capitalist society, you don't want to bail every company out of failure. There are a lot of people, including Mitt Romney, who had run for president. You know, he thought they should let let General Motors fail. That General Motors should not have gotten the bailout. That was a controversial decision because what you're doing is you pr- you privatize profit and then you socialize risk. We did it with Fannie Mae too. Also, it's it's not necessarily the best public policy, but given that the Chinese uh, society is v- vastly more socialistic than ours, there's no, almost like no question. Um, but given the level of employment, they'll do something to help them. Um, but you know, generally in the United States, I don't know. I'll take the other bills. side of that bet, Ken. I actually think, in in many respects, they'll let these things fail in a way that we we won't. Um, oh, the Chinese, really? Okay. Yeah, that'll be the, that'll be the side of the bet I'd take on that. Yeah, because um, I, I think there's a lot of discussion about how the U.S. is capitalist society, but in practice is socialistic, whereas in China it pretends to be socialistic, but is in fact quite capitalistic. So it's sort of like everything is quite is kind of the opposite. Um, now, I mean, yeah, I think you're quite right of how this would proceed in the West, but I don't. I think it's going to be you know what's cynical term a total clusterfuck in China. And I so, think it's good. Charles, you're talking about liquidation then. A total failure means a liquidation. Everybody loses their job. Yeah, I think that's going to happen in China. Ken, Ken I, think, I think what Charles is also getting at too is that communism is going to demonstrate to its people why it's the system that they should choose. Because they're, the people aren't going to go hungry. They're not going to be on the streets. But oh, they're not going right. to have prosperity. Drops over there. You're right. They're not going to have prosperity but they're not going to die. They're not going to be living in the streets. And that's where they're going to say, hey, look, you know, we're weathering this economic decoupling in a different way than the United States. Look, the United States, they're destroying their own, you know, high school bathrooms. And, you know, I don't want to get down that path, but it, it's no, going to be right. a showdown. I think it's you're right. They're going, between... use, they're going to use the behavior of what's gone on in the U.S. of burning down our cities and of uh, homelessness and destroying you know, the bathrooms and all the rest of it, they're going to use that prop- propagandistically within China. Charles, Mike? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, Thank I can't Charles hear you. Just dropped. It's okay. We'll wait for him to come back. But the, the next big article is from Monica. And it says J.P. Morgan Chase to debut a U.K. digital bank. Debuting its first overseas retail bank in its more than 200-year history, the bank plans to invest in the new U.K. operation, make itself a serious force there. Okay. And I'm tweeting all of these, as usual, to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW, so if they sound interesting you can follow along there the next one's from poppy from SciTech daily seaweed farms 
in river estuaries, which are like rivers, uh, can significantly reduce nitrogen concentrations and prevent environmental pollution. A new study by a Tel Aviv University and University of California, Berkeley, proposes a model according to which the establishment of seaweed farms in rivers could produce, uh, prevent environmental pollution. Pretty clever. And you can make these, you they're almost... seaweed in river? Yeah. Seaweed is supposed to be salty. River is no. fresh water, right? Correct. Yeah, you can have seaweed in fresh water. Freshwater seaweed. This stuff makes me so happy, Tyler, that like, you know, the engineers and scientists are really embracing nature too to, to help solve a lot of these problems because nature has been doing it for billions of years and getting it right. Yeah, the big per, One of the most promising CO2 reduction schemes happening on planet Earth at the moment is massive seaweed farms. They're almost like they're, you know. And, and, and Tyler, I'm sorry if you don't drag Eli up, he's gonna beat me with a stick when he okay. sees me in person. Okay. Okay. Uh, where's Eli? Get your hand up, Eli. And Craig and Shane, I invited you up, but it seems you weren't able yeah. to come up. I, I just read freshwater seaweed has an advantage because it's less salty. But the in either case, seaweed can grow rather quickly because it has the water right there. It just needs the sunlight, and if you can create the right conditions for seaweed to grow more efficiently. And then you have the benefit of not having to worry about expose, uh, kind of, you know, uh, disposing of it because once it grows to a ridiculous size, you throw, you know, you combine it into a tighter ball <clears throat> and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. So it's not like normal waste where you have to figure out what to do with it. So you can make these like it's like very nutritious. It's a food source. Don't throw away. Come on. Yeah, and it, it absorbs a lot of like phosphates and other other nitrates and other things in the water. You know, so it 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 eats up CO two. It produces oxygen. It it binds nitrogen. Um, you know, it takes up phosphates. Eli would go on a rant. Here he is. <laughs> so so um, okay, everything. There, there are complexities, but um, yes, uh, the growth is typically nutrient limited and nutrients, uh, um, they're good for seaweed. They're also good for things that we don't want growing uh, uh, at too high levels because they cause things like uh, uh, hypoxia or dead zones um, when too many things uh, start feasting on them and then start uh um, you know, taking up all of the oxygen and then there's, there's nothing left. Um, so, so like an ideal case would be say, uh, although, okay, shipping would, would, uh, would, uh, loudly object, but from, from the, uh, climate perspective and ecological perspective, an ideal case would be, uh, say the Mississippi river, which discharges a lot of nutrients into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, creating dead zones. Um, uh, that would be one example, but there are actually, uh, efforts planned in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, to grow seaweed there, uh, to deal with the same problem as well as, uh, um, other types of pollution like, uh, like metals. Uh, now 
the thing is, seaweed is like, as was mentioned, is can, can be food. But um, if you're using it for food, you're not really doing carbon capture because all of that carbon is going to get uh, exhaled uh, down the line as, as CO2 again. But feeding people is good. Um, sinking seaweed is something that... Uh, uh, has been proposed and people are doing it and people also are studying it because it's unclear what the permanence will be um, uh, in, in terms of carbon storage, even if it's short term. Uh, lot, okay. In, in the carbon uh, uh, removal universe, um, you know, for good reasons, people are concerned that there's enough permanence, but right now, uh, because we don't want to go over tipping points, I think permanence of 10 or 20 years, uh, which is usually below the threshold, is is still worth considering if it's cheap and easy enough. So on that score, uh, sinking seaweed might be at, at the very least a, a reasonable clutch play. At the same time, uh, people kind of think of the the seafloor, for example. I know I'm I'm kind of getting away from from rivers here, but this is an important point. People think of of, of the seafloor as just like this this vast, you know, dead desert, and it's not. There there are there are ecosystems down there, and we should try to understand what we're doing before we we start really disturbing them at at large scale. Um, the other things with seaweeds uh, is that they they do produce or organohalides and organosulfides, and some of these things, uh, the organohalides can uh, potentially, if this needs to be studied more, but they can potentially uh, damage the ozone layer. Um, at the same time, there are other things that also produce them naturally. So it, it's all a question of if we're doing something, how does that, um, how is that relative to the natural background? Organosulfides, uh, which are kind of the, the, the seaweed smell that people associate with, with the smell of the ocean, um, can actually... Uh, affect cloud formation because seaweed actually are are their own have been doing geoengineering uh, long before we walked the earth to uh, modulate the sunlight that they're getting to levels that are that are enough that they get the light that they want but they're not getting overgrown by microalgae or cyanobacteria uh, but um, uh, the water is also a cooler temp sea surface is also a cooler temperature that's favorable to them and not favorable to other organisms. Now, the thing is this, some of those things may be a net win in terms of climate, but it needs to be, uh, studied and measured directly. And, and this is like still in its infancy, uh, in terms of rivers, um, there are other like pollution related things that seaweed uh, um, and other ecological engineering re approaches really could be helpful with. And, and I am a proponent of, of, of these things and I, I won't go on anymore. We, we can do a room on it uh, if people like. So next one up, uh, school kids in New Zealand discovered a new species of giant penguin. And that was discovered when a group of children, citizen scientists, came across a huge fossil. Uh, augmented reality and healthcare market size to reach $4.23 billion. AR, augmented reality, 
in the healthcare market has helped surgeons as well as nurses and doctors to interact with patients using AR applications. And so the global market uh, to reach 4.2 billion. So every AR med tech company can put that on slide number three of their pitch deck for their investors. It's a $4.23 billion market, AR and med tech. Scientists in Singapore transform fruit leftovers into antibacterial bandages. Scientists at Nanyang Technical University in Singapore are tackling food waste by turning discarded durian husks into antibacterial gel bandages. And that's good news for me. I am surrounded by uh, durian <laughs> husks here. And uh, boy, I did not realize we could use these as antibacterial bandages. That's fantastic news. The next one about universal basic income, Time Magazine, time.com, says, inside the nation's largest guaranteed income experiment, can giving poor families a financial cushion have a demonstrable impact on their health, job prospects, and communities? Uh, 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 and it's a, it's, it starts off by saying, at a fried chicken chain in Compton, California, in a strip mall, they splurged on a few plates of rice and da, da, da. the family was only able to afford the meal because leo is part of a groundbreaking guaranteed income experiment in his city called the compton pledge in regular installments between late 2020 and the end of 2022 leo and 799 other individuals are receiving up to seven thousand two hundred dollars annually to spend however they like Leo, an undocumented immigrant from Guatemala, who Time has agreed to refer to by the pseudonym to protect his identity, receives quarterly payments of $900. So three, he's getting $300 a month, but he gets paid quarterly, $900. Okay. The organization running the Compton Pledge called the Fund, called the fund for Guaranteed Income is building the technological infrastructure necessary to distribute cash payments on a broad scale and has partnered with an independent research group to study the extent to which minimum income floor can lift families like Leo's out of poverty. The pilot, which distributes money derived from private donors, is not just about giving people the ability to buy small indulgences. It's testing whether giving poor families a financial cushion can have de demonstrable impact or demonstrable. There's a word you can say two ways. Demonstrable, demonstrable demonstrable impact on their physical and psychological health, job prospects, and communities. And perhaps the biggest question of all, can these cash infusions transcend their status as a small research project in progressive Los Angeles and someday work as a nationwide program funded by taxpayers? The theory is gaining momentum in the U.S., and there's limited polling on support for nationwide guaranteed income programs, but 45% of Americans supported giving every adult citizen, regardless of employment or income, $1,000 a month through a subtype of guaranteed income called a UBI, Universal Basic Income, according to an August 2020 survey from Pew Research. Andrew Yang, who popularized the idea of UBI during his long-shot 2020 presidential campaign, wants the proposed benefit to replace most existing government welfare programs. Most other proponents of guaranteed income of the U.S., however, resist being lumped in with this plan, 
believing instead that the cash benefit should supplement other forms of government assistance and target individuals who need it most. So I guess we will know more at the end of 2022 uh, when this program uh, concludes and see what kind of conclusions they come to. The Compton Pledge. Tyler, you may want to point out for the benefit of people not from California that Compton's probably the poorest city in Los Angeles County by far. That's why it's in Compton. Yeah, that region. Yeah, I used to teach school there, and I, LS used to go to school not not far from there. So, um, yeah, it's it's what it's what the locals call the hood. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it, you could. It's, I guess, to your point, not a surprise that this would be a place where this would be implemented. Wouldn't so, do it in Beverly Hills, that's my point. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense to do it in Beverly Hills or Malibu. Um, the next one, ByteDance new TikTok for kids in China limits access to 40 minutes per day. Okay. So China's concerned with how kids are using TikTok in China, limiting it to 40 minutes per day. The next one, the United Nations warns, this is according to the New York Times, that the UN warns of catastrophic pathway without or with the current climate pledges, meaning the promises that countries make to, to themselves and each other at generally at the big annual event, uh, COP, COP, which I think we just had COP26 in Glasgow. And these countries all make these big promises of how much CO2 they're going to reduce and the UN's warning that uh, the current climate pledges put us on a pathway of a catastrophic pathway an accounting of promises made by countries in the years since the Paris Accord found that and the Paris Accord was done at what COP 22 or some 21 uh, in Paris about yeah five years ago uh, found that they are not enough to avoid drastic impacts on the climate change. And in fact, it found out they will, we will get to 2.7 degrees Celsius, which is 0.7 more than the tipping point that will send us down the slippery slope to Armageddon. So, um, because the, the belief is that the, um, the, the planet basically, it, once you get past a certain amount of CO2, there will be no kind of recover. The heat will kind of fester on itself and it will be this snowball effect uh, that you can't really escape from or a gravity like sinkhole like effect. So, uh, circling the drain, as they say. So, the next one's from Poppy Australian police use facial recognition to make sure you're home during the COVID quarantine. The country's two most populous states are using facial recognition scanning technologies, extending controversial trials to most Australians. The next one from Messi is that Ethiopians have won gold medal in the World Robot Contest champions in Beijing, China. And you can see a photo. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Heyman sends Yay. in... Yeah. <laughs> Heyman sends in this article that Ireland's privacy watchdog accused of paralyzing GDPR enforcement, which I hinted about uh, when we were going through the big headlines. A new report from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties has accused Ireland's data protection watchdog of pulling the brakes on the enforcement of GDPR. 
which is true. I think they even will acknowledge that. <laughs> um, and as I said before, the, they don't want to penalize the big tech companies that are all based in Dublin. The, when the American tech companies set up their shops in the EU, Dublin had a very attractive low tax rate and rolled out the the red carpet and they all signed up and now they're there and they Tesla, uh, Dublin and Ireland benefited tremendously from that. And so they don't want to penalize these companies that they wind and dine and catered to. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's some weird back, you know, backdoor handshaking kind of deals going on. Who knows? Maybe some journalist is going to find out, that the, the the person who's supposed to be um, penalizing these companies for their GDPR violations, maybe they're not doing it for, maybe they're getting some kind of kickbacks. Who knows? Or maybe there's some corruption going on. Maybe they just really don't want to, you know, enforce bad, what they feel aren't fair policies on their, the companies that have employed so many Dubliners. Who knows? But it is widely known that they're not enforcing these rules that the EU has made. And Ireland's not not doing what the EU's saying they should do. It's because it's an EU rule. Dublin's like, we didn't vote for that shit. We didn't want to participate in that. <laughs> but the companies are based in, in Dublin. Well, maybe leave the EU? Could that put, well, then that could get really interesting. If Dublin's like, you know what? We like these big tech companies. We don't want to penalize them. We like having them here. And the EU might say, well, then you might need to leave the EU if you don't want to hold these EU policies against them, which, by the way, the UK is no longer. That's one of the things that the UK, you know, why they wanted to have Brexit. They didn't want to do the whole GDPR thing either. And if that Ireland solves the, the Northern Ireland problem. Right. So, so if Ireland bails out of the EU, what how much? This could get super interesting because these big tech companies, you know, it's, it's Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple. They're all there. Might they be having and a pint down buy, at the... They could buy, could, Tyler, they could buy Ireland. This is what I'm saying. From America to the U.S. This is what I'm saying. Might those big tech giants be having a pint down at the pub with Ireland saying, hey, you know what? How much would it cost you to leave the EU? And how about we take? How about we turn this into Technoland? I mean, Ireland has a nice ring to it, but Technoland, uh, we could really go hog wild and turn the Emerald Isle into, you know, Silicon Island. Um, and who knows? There, there could be something to that. So, climate. Ireland's only this. Ireland's only. Ireland's only got like. Uh, 30 million people right so that would not be that hard to pull off that'd be just like buying california or something yeah and it's english speaking right so people in silicon valley could move to ireland and still have the same kind of lifestyle maybe the weather won't be so good well, california is one of the largest economies in the world yeah seventh yeah climate migration is already happening cnbc America's largest finance news outlet. The headline from Evan from CNBC says climate migration is already happening for homeowners who 
who can afford it. A growing number of homeowners are relocating and citing climate change as a primary factor in their decisions to move. Let me guess, water shortage in California, perhaps? For those who are already feeling the direct impact of global warming and can afford to relocate, climate change migration has begun. Nearly half of Americans who plan to move in the next year say natural disasters and extreme temperatures factored into their decision to relocate, according to a survey conducted by Redfin. Half, one in five Americans believe climate change is already neg negatively impacting home values. Wow. In their area. Oh, shit. And 35% of homeowners have already spent $5,000 or more protecting their homes against climate risk. Here we go. Here it comes. Christy Gentry and her husband have been dealing with California's wildfires for the past four years. In 2017, the couple evacuated their Santa Rosa home for three weeks. In 2019, they were forced to cut a trip to Hawaii short and get their animals and stuff out of their house as fire approached. It was just one thing after another. It was smoke. It was fire. And the potential of the fire danger and potential of being evacuated, it changed the way we viewed our property. After so many fires, Gentry and her husband rented a home in Bend, Oregon on August 2020, so they would have somewhere to go during the California fire season. <laughs> it's, it's just comical that this is like becoming a dependable thing, this California fire season thing. Uh, you got to have your second home for fire season, you know, like the Swedes do yeah, for summer. I live, I live right be like a, I, I live in that quote unquote urban wildland interface, and so you know I've had three fires tear through my like uh, backyard in about uh, the eight years I've lived here. So um, we're just used to it. She says it comes down to feeling safe. Everybody has a little PTSD. I won't even light candles in the house. Gentry is among a growing number of homeowners citing climate change as a primary reason for leaving nearly half of Americans who plan to move in the next year, say natural disasters and extreme temperatures factored in their decision to relocate. <coughs> <coughs> Last month, the UN climate panel delivered the, a dire report calling for immediate action. The agency warned that limiting global warming to close to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius or even 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will be beyond reach in the next two decades without rapid and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas. The report said that the 2 degrees Celsius heat extremes would often reach critical tolerance thresholds for agriculture and health. Yes, we're going to cause droughts, and that's going to lose agriculture. And people are going to have to move. One in five Americans believe climate change is happening, and fleeing fires and rising seas in California. It's a very long article. Giving up on Tyler, the you know, earlier this summer, there was massive heat waves unprecedented in the Pacific Northwest and right. in Vancouver. And a lot of those people don't have air conditioning because they're not used to that kind of hot summer. Right. So it may not be a solution to move to Oregon. Yeah. No, I agree. It's holding up a lot better than the rest of U.S. Yeah. So uh, I, li I like I like seeing see people saying it's already happening. I like the data, like 50 percent are mindful of it and wherever they move to next and everything else. Move somewhere with water. Uh, that would be my tip. So the next one from Heyman. Well, is... While we're on uh, yeah. climate, uh, just uh, saw this. Greenland sea ice is now at the lowest uh, extent ever recorded in modern history. 
So you got a little potential sea level rise. You got a little potential slowing down of the Gulf Stream, which keeps the Scandinavia livable. Ellen, you got the volcano over there in uh, the Canary Islands going yeah. off. And... Ellen, being in Norway as you are, are people talking more about the potential of the Gulf Stream slowing down as a result of the fresh water coming into the Gulf system as a result of the melting ice in the north there? Not really, not specifically at least. But okay. um, climate change were a huge part of the last uh, government elections. Ah, okay. So the Green Party got a lot of seats in the last election? No, actually not, which was a big surprise. They didn't even... I mean, they did the worst uh, election in 10 years, I think. Mm. Okay. So the next article is kind of related from Heyman from Japan Today. Uh, bumpy road as aging Japan bets on self-driving cars. Japan is the first country in the world to allow vehicle capable of taking full control in certain situations to operate on public roads. Take that, Germany. Germany was hoping they would be the first to do so. Um but they're doing it because of the aging folks. They got a whole lot of old folks over there in Japan. Really adorable, you know, cute little Oji-sans, Obasans. And um, they have trouble driving. But if you got autonomous cars, I can see why they uh, are, might allow this before everybody else. Kind of interesting. There's a pride element too, right? Like you don't want to be a burden on your family. So you're more likely to try to take care of yourself, drive yourself. And that's when you kind of get in trouble, right? There's a bit of that. Yeah. The next one. Well, oh, uh, this is uh, uh, from Market Watch that Wall Street yawns as China property giant nears default. Evergrande, the Chinese property giant, faces default next week. So far, global investors have shrugged off the event. <clears throat> The next one is from Bloomberg. Facebook sees WhatsApp as its future. Entry trust suit or not, the messaging service makes practically no money now, but Mark Zuckerberg has plans to change that. And indeed, he does, because uh, the biggest app in all of China, and perhaps even the world, is WhatsApp in China, which started out as a messaging app nearly identical to WhatsApp. And then it added payments. And after that, WeChat, payments, WeChat. It's not WhatsApp. It's sorry, WeChat. I always confuse the two. My brain is totally screwed up on those two apps. It's okay. Yeah. So uh, WeChat, just like WhatsApp, similar logos, similar names, hence the confusion. Um, basically, WeChat added payments and the ability to use it as a way to send money to friends and buy things at shops. And then the next thing you know, you can buy things inside of apps and it became what's called a super app. And now it does the functions of Tinder and Airbnb and anything, ordering food and everything, 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 everything. It does everything. So um, it's not un unimaginable that that type of behavior is moving westward it seems to be. It seems to be Americans are just a little behind on this kind of curve, just like buy now, pay later. It's finally coming. And just like uh, social commerce is now coming. And this soup, if this super app behavior comes as well, which it's likely to do, WhatsApp is in prime position to be the super app. 
Um, and so that's why I say Facebook sees WhatsApp as its future. Very legitimately could be because it, as a brand, people still use it a lot, a shit ton, a lot, a lot, a lot, all over the planet. So even in India, where they don't like using, um, you know, so anyway, we, it could, this could, that could become massive. WhatsApp always, they've always known it could be. It's just a matter of if the West will adopt the super app kind of mentality, which I, I bet it would do. The next, yes. I got to tell you in, um, in Turkey where I am right now, we don't even really check emails or anything anymore. Everything, almost everything in communications that's being had, it's on WhatsApp. Yeah, India is entirely and, WhatsApp. Uh, a lot of the other, you know, European contacts that we have. Yeah, we hardly even even uh, on emails anymore. Yeah, India India doesn't either. It's all WhatsApp. Everything's WhatsApp. Yeah, and China's been doing that for more than five years on WeChat, right? Uh, yeah. Even business deals are done on WeChat. So the next article is from Jeff G. from CNN, one of Asia's most prestigious universities, is on the front line of the battle. Uh, between Hong Kong and China. A political chill hangs over Hong Kong University that some staff say is influencing how they teach. Students and lecturers at Hong Kong's most prestigious university re returned from summer break this month to a very different situation and very different institution. The Democracy Wall at the University of Hong Kong, better known as HKU, a pinboard where students once shared political thoughts, is gone. The student union, which once advocated for students, is all but defunct, with four of its members facing charges of advocating terrorism. Although many students and academics were happy to be back on campus, many for the first time since the start of the pandemic, a political chill hangs over the university that some staff say is influencing how they teach. While the Hong Kong government told CNN the city's universities continue to enjoy academic freedom. <laughs> yep. Yeah, what day is it? Is it, what, is it Monday? Okay, let's check back in on Friday. Four current HKU staff who spoke with CNN on condition of anonymity, gee, I wonder why, said they are more cautious about what they say in class, afraid that their own students could report them to authorities, as they do in China, <laughs> by the way. The self-censorship began after June. And by the way, they put spy students in the classrooms. Oh, you didn't know that? Feel free to Google it. The self-censorship began after June last year when Beijing imposed a controversial and sweeping national security law on the city. Since then, more than 140 people have, had, have been arrested under the law, including activists, journalists, politicians, and educators, and of those, 85 have been charged. HKU, the city's highest-ranked university, with more than 30,000 students, can be considered a microcosm of Hong Kong. Some HKU staff say a climate of fear and uncertainty surrounds what can, constitutes a breach of law. And they warned that, like the city itself, the freedoms and rights they once set the university apart from those in the mainland China are in fast decline. Here's the quote. Academic freedom has been eroded. Freedom of speech has been eroded in the university, said one university lecturer who asked to be referred to by the pseudonym Gordon as they still work at the university. It to pretend so even by saying your name to that quote that academic freedom has eroded and freedom of speech has eroded at the university he's not even willing to put his name on that quote why not why you can't even say that freedom of speech has been eroded right no you can't say that 
to and then he says uh he's using the pseudonym gordon as they still work at the university to pretend that it hasn't is ignoring reality he says the creeping changes risk jeopardizing yes i just wanted to say during brexit that was the kind of thing happening in uk as well people who were pro-brexit were afraid to voice their in academic circles sure uh, their opinion so it happens everywhere mm, this is a totally different context this is going yeah, to jail sure. yeah no you're not going to jail for being pro-brexit so and it's not the government that you're worried about by expressing your pro-brexitness a matter of fact you know the you're worried about your co-workers and your colleagues this is not that at all they're not worried about their colleagues and their co-workers all their colleagues and their co-workers agree with them it's the government that they're worried about so the political situation unfolding both on and off campus frequently crept into the classroom discussions some professors even referred to the protests as examples in their classes some lecturers publicly supported student demonstrators the day students turned hku into a fortress professors braved the tense face-off to negotiate with the police Throughout the protest, staff helped students when they got arrested and provided mental health support, according to the students and faculty. And it goes on. It's a very long article. So I will tweet that one out for those who want to enjoy that one. And then we'll get into the next tweet, which is this one from Professor Asif about attention deficit disorder, ADHD. A large Swedish multi-generational study shows a link between ADHD and a risk for Alzheimer's. Parents of individuals with ADHD had 34% higher risk of dementia than parents of those without ADHD. Good times. The next one from The Guardian from Demolaire that... Uh, SpaceX's historic amateur astronauts land safely back on Earth in the Atlantic. The four-person crew thanked Mission Control as they splashed down in the Atlantic. And Evan sends in this very funny one. Uh, it's a photo that I just tweeted out that you have to see to understand. A Chinese citizen was facing demolition of his house. So we came up with a really interesting solution that you have to see from the Twitter account. He covered his entire home, literally every square inch, in the same uh, wheat, wheat poster, uh, wheat paste posters of uh, photos of Chairman Xi Jinping. So his entire home, every square inch is covered in this same... <laughs> repeating photo of chairman or president G assuming the construction his photo. yeah that whoever's driving the bulldozer uh would risk you know getting themselves in deep shit by bulldozing down a house covered in chairman G photos and the next one's from Ken from the Wall Street Journal and it's about the TikTok uh caps the screen time for use in China and Maurice in the audience sends this one in from the New York Times that the Biden administration seeks to expand telehealth into rural America. New funding will allow more medical appointments to take place via video in rural communities where some of the nation's oldest and sickest patients live. Now, this was not obvious two years ago. 
In fact, there were a lot of geeks who were thinking, why don't we just do a lot of these doctor visits uh, through telemedicine, telehealth, like Skype calls and the whatnot. And from what I could gather, the medical professionals were not so eager to participate. They were kind of kicking and screaming to keep it as it was. Boy, has COVID really changed this. And the fact that the Biden administration seeks to expand telehealth because now we can potentially save our medical, our totally busted medical system by embracing technologies like telehealth, which vastly could reduce all of the costs involved. Why the fuck not? But now this is wild. You know, that this friction you know, that used to exist is now turned into lubricant. Messy? No, I was going to say that Africa, out of necessity, has been a leader on that one because I think remote areas, especially out of the countryside where biggest population lives, don't have really access to healthcare. So uh, it has been years here, even in Ethiopia, where you know nurses would send the laboratories over, even outside of Ethiopia, or even have telehealth. You know some. Uh, doctors and specialists would would give you know advice and diagnosis just through a phone call uh, with a nurse who is you know on on location and in clinics. So that has been really good and and just like I said, out of necessity, it has been working quite well. Now I guess um, the others are picking them. So yeah, it's great to see. Yeah, this was great for uh, Dr. Danish. I know his company is focused on this and, um, you know, he's quite busy. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping he's successful as a result of this new change, you know, these uh, these changes in the mindset of the consumer. So the next one's from Hassan. Uh, it's, it's, it says it's from Jenny Jardin, who works at Boing Boing, one of the four found, co-founders of Boing Boing, and who's been an uber geek from the beginning um and jenny tweets out a link to the new york post about a secret office mansion owned by longtime jeffrey epstein associate and google co-founder larry page has burned down and by the way i this is the first i've heard of larry page having connections to jeffrey epstein to be honest it says palo alto home one of many owned by larry page who actually has been living with his family in Fiji, was the work site of about six workers. And it burnt down. What does it mean, secret office? What's the secret office? Secret office mansion owned by Larry Page burns down. Yeah, like completely. This is when you wish you had Charles here, right? <laughs> yeah, it says, um, boy, when they say the house burned down, they mean it, it burnt to nothing. Like there's nothing left. It's gone. Like there was, it's a dirt lot. Um, interesting. The Epstein, that the Epstein's the, that's the first time I've ever heard that association. You know, they, they made it seem like it was uh well known. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. I, I'm not aware of it either. So next one up is from Evan from Business Insider, Verizon has unveiled something called Thor, T-H-O-R, a custom Ford F-650 that can deploy a satellite dish, a 5G mast, and drones to respond to natural disasters and emergencies. That's clever. Good on you, Verizon. And the next one, David Crace sends in that a Sports Illustrated model 
suing Twitter for $10 million claims copyright was breached. Genevieve Morton, uh, Sports Illustrated model Genevieve Morton has sued Twitter over unauthorized photo use. Morton accuses the tech company Twitter of contributing to copyright infringement. The lawsuit was one of two that Morton has filed against Twitter. Un- it saying this that it cre- it says Twitter's algorithm contributed to copyright infringement by cropping photos of her that were posted by other users. This created unauthorized derivative works. Earlier this month, she sued Twitter in federal court, alleging in part that the company had been slow to remove her copyrighted material, which was posted by unauthorized accounts. Morton sought a $10 million in damages. It's frustrating trying to control your own image, she says. Technology companies and social media platforms should be on the side of artists and content creators because that's what makes these sites interesting and valuable. She added, when I learned Twitter had developed artificially intelligent cropping tools using male engineers who impose their own biases, enough was enough. The lawsuit filed on September 3rd listed both Twitter and TweetDeck as defendants. It also listed Magic Pony Technologies, a photo algorithm company acquired by Twitter in 2016 as a defendant. Morton's lawyer, Jennifer Holliday, declined to discuss the lawsuit in detail, saying only that it appeared to be the first time Twitter had been sued over the algorithm. A Twitter spokesperson declined to comment. Cheryl, in her complaint, Morton, whose Twitter account had more than 80,000 followers, said another unassociated account had posted two of her copyrighted photos without permission. The lawsuit listed the owners of that handle as defendants, though they, though they weren't identified by name. The account has since been suspended for violating Twitter's rules. Morton filed takedown requests for both photos. One removal took about three months. The other took about five weeks, the lawsuit says. And Morton's lawsuit said that the actual damages could be higher because Twitter doesn't display how many times the post was viewed. It was unclear how many Twitter users saw the photos in question while they were live, the lawsuit says. We'll see how that. This one's really a stretch, Tyler. Yeah. <laughs> China's quote unquote standards 2035 project could result in a technological cold war. The repercussions of the Chinese plan would create blocks of influence, each following separate technological standards governing emergency and critical technologies. The eventual decline of the West's dominance in the standards domain has offered an opportunity for China to play a bigger role in finalizing and setting technology standards. The Chinese state has gradually increased its technological capabilities and has worked towards strengthening uh, the technological sector in the country during the last two decades. The government argues that a revamp of, of international tech governance framework mechanisms is needed to break the existing hegemony of the West. President Xi has categorically stated the global rules cannot be imposed by one or a few countries. China's leaders believe that the process of standard setting is the sign of leading tech power, increased economic and geopolitical influences at the core of China's pursuit to dominate the international standards stage, along with this addressing vulnerabilities and lapses in the existing governance frameworks by tweaking the standard setting process to the state's advantage is also an important objective for the government. Okay. With all that in mind, China's Standards 2035 project was conceived by the Chinese leadership as they saw an immense political and economic value in setting 
tech standards. Okay. It aims to cover, hold on, here we go. China Standards 2035 aims to cover standards like related not only to critical technologies, but also different sectors like agriculture and manufacturing. Okay. Tweeted that one out from Evan. The next one from Evan is also about Australia and France. Oh boy, are they in a in a, in a lover's quarrel, these two. Australia says France French submarines were inferior to technology offered by US and UK. Oh boy. <laughs> Uh-oh. France is not going to be too happy with that. And it's for those who haven't been following along, Australia had plans to build submarines with the under kind of French French submarines using their technologies, diesel submarines but being built in Australia and then now next thing you know they're going to use American nuclear submarines and obviously this is not Tyler, yes it's a no-brainer you have to remember for two reasons not only that they get French approach was a 20th century approach the U.S. is providing a 21st century approach secondly the nuclear submarine, if it's diesel, it needs to come up within 24 hours on the surface. Nuclear submarine can stay submerged for years, right, subject to food and things being available. So if I was Australia, I would have done the same thing. So yeah. uh, to blame Australia, this is a business deal yeah. that Australia uh, has a bold uh, prime minister who saw the opportunity and took it. Uh, yeah. And uh, 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 that's the way it should be looked at, not too much well, into it. it, it France, might be... France has recalled um, its ambassadors from Australia and the U.S. as a result of this. Johan's, they do it hours because they think we're not relevant. Johan's one-liner was the best. <laughs> Earlier he said, I would pick the the country that actually won World War II instead <laughs> of the one that lost. While France is fuming that the U.S. And, and the U.K. effectively scuttled a $66 billion deal for Australia to buy 12 French submarines. And apparently, France is a bit reliant on other countries also buying their subs to minimize the cost of having, you know, the scale of production of the subs. So they, to keep the costs down of their own subs, they need to find other countries that also want to buy their subs so they can build them in bulk. And if other countries aren't buying them, they're not. It doesn't make sense for them to only make them for themselves. And now you see why it's a kind of a compounding problem there. Interesting would be what India does. Whether India sticks to the French kind of alliance that they have with military alliance, hmm. or that moves to the U.S. So the next one, is... I think they were annoyed. I think they were annoyed that the U.S. made some kind of you know discussion with the U.K. but not uh, the French. The French wasn't also included, even just to be in the conversation. So I think that's part of also they thought that they are friends. <laughs> so even though it was big business deal, that they would have been happy if they were just included. I heard that U.K. is not even gonna have huge part in it but but at least they they are part of you know the consortium so that they would have been happier if they were just have even a tiny part to be in that group that's <laughs> i think that would have made it better but it's a win for boris johnson because post brexit this gives him a, like a 
that it's it's political in that sense. It's it gives him kudos. Yeah, I just tweeted out the article. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's all they needed, just to be politically even part of it. Yeah, exactly. I, I just tweeted the article about French recall envoys to U.S. and Australia over submarine contract. And a single fire killed thousands of sequoias in California. Scientists are racing to save the rest. The world's largest trees are adapted to wildfires, but the fire is getting more extreme. And scientists warn that giant sequoias are running out of time. And Andreessen Horowitz leads the fight to prevent the SEC from classifying bitcoins as what? Commodities or securities or what? As financial institutions. Interest in trading cryptocurrencies explodes. Andreessen Horowitz is leading a group of influential venture capitalists in uh, working with the SEC. Because they've got a whole lot invested in the crypto space. They're probably the biggest, they have the most exposure to the crypto space. Um, being uh, as financial, uh, oh, being class, they, uh, Andreessen Horowitz is leading a group of influential venture capitalists to protect cryptocurrencies from being classified as securities. Moreover, Andreessen Horowitz is accelerating the launch of a dedicated crypto asset fund. An, an increasing number of finance firms are considering joining the crypto bandwagon to start trading Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies within the next few months. Okay, so tweeting that one out. Thank you, Shirok, for that one. And... The next one's that SpaceX's CEO, Elon Musk, says Starlink Internet service leaving beta in October. Also expects possibly 500,000 users soon. Harley-Davidson's new stunning vintage-inspired electric bicycles are going on sale later this year. With a, a stunning homage to the original prototype from 1903. IKEA partners with Sweden's Swedish House Mafia to produce um, objects for music in the home is, is my, my attempt at translating that headline. And David Crace uh, sends in this one from Forbes that music streaming subscriptions surpass 80 million amid streaming boom. The Recording Industry of America says paid subscriptions to platforms like Spotify and Apple Music comprised nearly two-thirds of total recorded music revenue in the first half of 2021. It's working. You record labels who were resisting working with Spotify have now all been proven wrong. It works. People are paying for music if you make it easy enough. But you didn't want to do that. You made it hard. And that's why we went to Napster and the Pirate Bay. And then Spotify came along and said, but what if we made it even easier? People would pay for it. And you labels said, no, 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 no. And you dragged your feet. But the Swedish labels said, let's do it. This is the future. This is obvious. It's better. And you American labels should thank your lucky fucking asses that Pearson Dean at Universal Music in Stockholm said, you know what? I like this app. This is the future. This is how people are going to enjoy music. And he was right because this guy had vision. And he said, yes, yeah, it, it, you can have. It was so innovative, right? I mean, and then the data came out 10 years ago in Sweden that this works and all the Swedes signed up for it. They loved it. 
And now everyone else loves it too. And now it's working. And now you record labels are still in business because of apps like Spotify, who saved your greedy, stupid asses. Because if it wasn't for Spotify, we would still be downloading that shit illegally off the internet. Because it was, you know, Apple had kind of created some bridge if you were, if you were, I don't want to say, use the word honest, but if you were in the ecosystem, you know, an entire album for nine ninety nine or one song for 99 cents, it took a lot of the friction out. But the second, you know, I discovered Spotify, um, you know, first in the free format and then the nine ninety nine all you can eat, it was really, you know, I never looked at iTunes again as far as, um, you know, buying music. When Apple Music came back out, you know, we went back to it, but we still have a Spotify account. And I think that's been the biggest innovation probably in all media, to be honest. That, that was such a huge deal. And they can make so much money off of it because I don't know, Tyler, how much... How many plays equals like a dollar for an artist? I don't know. They definitely make their money's worth at Spotify and the artists make their money's worth. It's a like a win-win for everybody, in my opinion. So the, the next one's from Cheryl from the Wall Street Journal. That manufactured homes are getting a luxe update as more homeowners embrace prefabricated properties for their quick turnaround. Yep. And 3D printed as well. It's booming. Uh, Joe Williams sends in this one from Science Daily. Uh, The headline reads, now we're cooking with lasers. Imagine having your own digital personal chef ready to cook whatever you want. And indeed, actual laser beams, freaking lasers, freaking laser beams cooking your burritos. And Faraz sends in this one from TechCrunch that Squad Mobility Eyes shared platforms as target for its compact solar electric cars. And you have to see these cute little Tiny electric solar-powered cars. They're adorable. Squad Mobility. Vision for the perfect urban vehicle is a low-cost EV equipped with solar panels, swappable batteries, and enough zip and range. I think this is the future in cities that are cursed with bad weather. Um, Take a look for yourself at the Twitter account. The tweet I just twatted at TNATW from Faraz. Solar-powered EVs for in the city. They look like kind of nice golf carts with, with doors and stuff. Anyway, the Demolaire sends in one from Financial Times. Lab-grown meat isn't about sustainability. It's big business. As meat can be produced convincingly in a lab, those who own the IP will want you to consume much more of it. Yes, that's how business works, journalists. Uh, it's called business. So, so the article should be, the article should be, let meat is, is, is about business, not about sustainability. It says it's always been about that, and yeah, for about the past eight years now, um, yeah, the healthy option's been the most expensive option, but yeah. And then Demolaire sends in this one from The Guardian that China's Lehman Brothers moment, Evergrade crisis rattles economy. President Xi Jinping faces a serious test of his financial reforms as struggles of property giants and ripples through the real estate sector. And Poppy sends in the one from the New York Times that the scientist, it's called the scientist and the AI assisted remote control killing machine. And this is a very viral article from the New York Times. It's all about how uh, Iran's nuclear scientist was uh, assassinated by the Israelis with a remote control killing machine, AI assisted remote control killing machine. 
but th- that happened quite a while ago and there's documentaries you can watch about it but i don't know why this article is coming out years later um anyway so that takes us to the last two hours of tweets i'll leave you with this one kevin <clears throat> shark tank star kevin o'leary <clears throat> reveals a massive Bitcoin price prediction of trillions of dollars. <clears throat> so um, that takes us 10 minutes past. I got to take Lakeisha back to her boat. So we will meet again in six hours. And thank you to everybody for another thank you. headline field Tech News Around the World. Have a wonderful Monday, hey, everybody. Lakeisha. Okay. Bye. Have a good day. Thanks, everybody. You say it's no, in, in his, in his studio. In his studio. It's.